as we think about what the Lord wants to meet here with us and say, I want you to wrestle with a concept today. The Bible, God's written word to us, is a huge paradox. I've used that terminology here with OCCA before, but I want you to wrestle with that. The the scriptures are a huge paradox when it comes to grace and works. It's a huge paradox. Now, what does a paradox mean? A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded and true. So what is the paradox of grace and works? The paradox can be summed up by the biblical author James where he writes, you tell me you have faith and I will show you my faith by what I do. What is the role of works in the life of a believer? We live in an age in the United States of hyper-grace. That says you can pray this prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, and then you can live any way you want to, and it's all good, you'll still get into heaven. That's the message. The focus on the gospel in the Western church, which America is part of, is on what happens after I die. But is this how the biblical authors saw it? Is this how the early church saw it? Was it simply about what happened after I died? I was thinking this morning as we were worshiping about Paul preaching and teaching. And they're in an upper room somewhere, in a second story building somewhere, or maybe even higher, and he's preaching, and I love this guy's name, Dorcas. <laughs> Dorcas falls asleep during the sermon, falls out the window, and dies. If you're thinking about sleeping today, be wary of the whole thing. You might fall out the pew and die. No, but anyways. But Paul, I mean, if the, if the first century church would have been focused on what happens after you die then what injustice would it have been for Paul to come down, lay hands on the guy, and pray him back to life? If the gospel was all about when we get to heaven, why on earth do we pray for sick people to be healed? Why don't we say, oh, you got the flu? Lord, let the flu kill him this time. Right? I mean, if it's all about heaven... If it's all about what happens after we die, shouldn't, be, shouldn't that be the way we pray? But that's what we've made it about. We've made it about this fire insurance of getting to heaven. And so this has caused this big paradox. Now, this paradox has been a paradox for a long time. So much so that the reformer, Martin Luther, wanted the book of James removed from the Bible. Now, I think Martin Luther did a lot of stuff to help the church. I'm glad that he didn't get his way and get James taken out of the Scripture. But he wanted taken out of the canon. By the way, when people say that somewhere a council decided on what goes in the Scriptures and what doesn't, you can say, well, that's not true, because obviously there's a Protestant, when the Protestant Reformation started, Martin Luther wanted it taken out, and clearly God had other plans and made sure it didn't happen. Okay? There was no council. The Council of Nicaea did not canonize Scripture. They affirmed what the church had already done for hundreds of years. 
They, were not, they didn't decide which books to put in there. I always laugh when non-believers tell me that a council decided what, what scriptures go in there. It's not true at all. Go read More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell, the latest version, and he'll go through that really in detail for you. But I digress. That's why I have notes sometimes to get me back on track. But guys, there's this paradox about grace and works and about how we live our lives as believers matters. And, and, and it seems like a clash and it seems like it doesn't work out. But when we investigate this, when we wrestle with this, when we look at what the scriptures have to say about it, and more importantly, when we invite the Holy Spirit, who is the teacher, to teach in this, we find out that the paradox actually works out. It actually is logical. Here's how this paradox between grace and works has played out so far in the church. There are a group of theologians and pastors who believe that a person is once saved, always saved. You pray the sinner's prayer, you ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart, and you are secure in your salvation until the day you enter into heaven's gates. And then you're secure from then on. So it doesn't matter what you do. This is called Calvinism. This is called eternal security of the believer. It's the P, the perseverance of the saints, and the tulip. And I think it's wrong. Now, Arminianism, on the other hand, says that we can lose our salvation. That basically, extreme Arminianism says that if you sin, you've lost your salvation until such point as you repent. Now, many of you are already thinking, well, he doesn't believe Calvinism is right, so he must believe in Arminianism. I think Arminianism is wrong. I don't think either side, either extreme, has it right. I don't think the Bible teaches either extreme. I believe that if I look at one passage of Scripture, I can teach one extreme. And if I look at another passage of Scripture, right out of the Bible, I can teach another extreme. And so what happens, rather than looking at the paradox, wrestling through how it works, the ones that are in the Calvinistic camp, Ignore this side. And the ones that are in the Arminian camp, ignore this side. They ignore these scriptures where they explain why the understanding of them is not there. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Godly men on both sides of the issue. And by the way, there's going to be Calvinists in heaven. And there's going to be Arminians in heaven. Okay? But godly men and women on both sides of the issue have narrowly focused on one side that they ignore the passages on the other side that seem to contradict their viewpoint. You're saying, why are you bringing all this up today, preacher? Well, because we have one of those passages of Scripture today as we're preaching through the book of Hebrews that is... It's about this argument. It's about this paradox. And it's really a kind of a struggle. And so we just have to put that out there before we get into it. And let me just pause before you turn there. I want you to understand something about part of the reason why I preach through a book of the Bible, usually instead of preaching topical sermons. Because when I preach through a book of the Bible, we don't get to skip the hard points like this. Okay? We don't get to, we don't, and I can say, there are times, because we're preaching through a book of the Bible, that I can say crazy stuff from the pulpit, that if I just pick to topically preach on that, everybody would be like, who does he think he is? But if we're just going through it, 
You know, it just comes out, right? I mean, it's just what the Bible says. I mean, I shared with a, a pastor that I coach at, and was sharing this idea with him, and I said, man, I just preached through five sermons on Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. He reads it, and he goes, whoa, I can never get away with preaching that. And I'm like, dude, I was scared when I had to preach it, but I mean, we were preaching through the book of Hebrews, and it's just, it was there, and I had to. And because I'm preaching through the book, verse by verse, there's an expectation that I won't skip it. Amen? So everybody's willing to wrestle with the implications. That's why I preach verse by verse. Because that way we have to deal with the hard stuff and the easy stuff. So anyways, the once saved, always saved preachers preach over this next passage that we're going to be looking at. And they have to work hard to to soften the blow delivered by the author of Hebrews. But is what they do fair to the text? I don't know. Let's take a look and see. So if you'll open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hebrews 6, 4 through 9. As you're getting ready to read along with me, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You might be reading from the NIV or the NASB or the King James or the New King James or the whatever. It's all good. They're all just translations of the Greek when we're looking at the New Testament. So follow along. Wow. I am reading this and I'm like, this is totally... And I was, I was reading chapter 4, verse 6, not chapter 6, verse 4. And I'm like, wow, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Starting in verse 4 of chapter 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now, I'm going to let me just pause real quick as we read this. I want to go back. I'm going to kind of skip one part. I'm going to kind of summarize it in a couple of words. For it is impossible in the case of those who've already been enlightened about Jesus who fall away to restore them again to repentance. That's pretty much what it's saying. Okay, picking up in verse 6, halfway through. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated... Receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I wasn't sure about whether or not to include verse 9 in in today's message or to go on, but I really felt the Lord told me to include verse 9. And so we're going to see why when we get into the sermon. Well, let's pray. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak. The scriptures tell us that God's spirit makes known the mysteries of God. God doesn't want this to be a secret to you. He wants to teach you. So in humbleness, ask him as I ask him, Lord, instruct me today. Father, I pray for liberty of your spirit right now to preach a message today. 
and to teach a message today that is from you. Lord, if I'm going to say something that's not of you, strike it from my lips. If I'm going to forget to say something that you want me to say, would you bring it to remembrance? And Lord, beyond all else, even no no matter what words I say, Holy Spirit, teach us in ways that only you can. And we ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. So when you read this passage of Scripture, at least when I read this passage of Scripture, the first thing that jumps out to me is the word impossible. It says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been in line. And that jumps out to me. I, I don't know, maybe it doesn't come out to you, but I look at that and I'm like, whoa, it's impossible. That's a pretty doggone bold statement. That's actually kind of harsh. Kind of final, right? It's impossible. And I'm like, really? It's impossible. So this really makes me take notice. You know, not everything jumps out of the scriptures at me all the time when I read it. Sometimes I'm reading, especially when I'm reading in First Chronicles and I'm finding out that so-and-so is the son of so-and-so is the son of so-and-so. And I'm like, oh, Lord, please let something jump out here, you know. <laughs> like, you're going, I mean, that's just one of those. You're reading it, and you know it's important because it was really important to establish bloodlines and all of that. But you're like, oh. But when I'm reading this, like, impossible is like, bam, jumps off the page, right? It's like Emerald Lagasse was inside my Bible. And I opened it up, and he's like, bam, right? You know, you know how Emerald is. Those of you who don't know Emerald Lagasse, go look him up. But so, I mean, it just comes out and it just jumps off the page to me. Now, if I, had to, if I had to go by this passage alone, I would certainly have no choice, zero choice, but to believe that a person can lose their salvation. Let your theology go. Just read this passage alone. For it is impossible in the case of those who've gotten saved, who once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? Eternal life. Who've tasted the heavenly gift. Who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Those who've experienced God's miracles in their life. It is impossible to restore them once again to repentance if they fall away. since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. If I just read that in context, I'm like, hey, they can't do it. Now, if I read it in context of the first six chapters of Hebrews like we've been going through, this is a warning that's over and over and over and over again inside of the first six chapters of Hebrews. It's repeated. Don't be like the Jews. Don't be like the Jews. Don't be like the Jews. Don't be like... He says that all in the first few chapters over and over again. Don't be like them who saw God, who knew what God was doing, who had this relationship with God, who lost their relationship with God, who fell dead in the wilderness and did not enter into the promised land. So if I had this passage alone to go by, I'd go, well, you can lose your salvation. 
This harsh warning, because it's so harsh and because I'm looking at these scriptures, this harsh warning causes me to dig deeper into what the words, what the word impossible actually means. And so um, the, the, the Greek word that's being translated is, is adunaton. It's from the Greek word adunatos. So that's there on the screen for you, adunaton. That's what it looks like in Greek. That's what it looks like in English. Adunaton comes from the word adunatos. This word, friends, is the antonym of ability, power, or possibility. Now, you guys know what a synonym is, right? So a synonym is a word that I can is interchangeable with another word means the same thing. An antonym is the opposite of a word. This is the this is the antonym of the word ability, power or possibility. It's kind of like um excuse me, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. It the root word Adunatos, adunaton is a, is a tense of adunatos, and the root word for adunatos is actually dunamis. Now, if you've ever heard any kind of preachers preach on Greek languages, does anybody know what the word dunamis means, anybody? Say it, yes, that was right on. Say it louder. What, what does it mean? Power. Dunamis means power. The root word of this is dunamis, but it's a dunaton or adunatos, so it's like putting like the uh sound on the beginning of it means it's the exact opposite of what it normally means. So I know this is not a perfect example of how this works, but it's like our words protagonist and antagonist. You put pro-antagonist, it means like the hero. You put, antag- you put an-antagonist, it means like the villain, right? you got a protagonist and an antagonist. Here's a better example. I am not the typical preacher. I'm the atypical preacher. Right? When I put the A, typ- the a on the front of the word typical, it means I'm the opposite of that. Amen? So you guys are saying I'm atypical? Tricked you, didn't I? <laughs> so. But anyway, so that's, that's what's going on here. Now, some theologians who are bothered by this harsh harsh statement have explained that it's rhetorical exaggeration. It's hyperbole. The author of Hebrews is overstating the case to try to make a point. And we know that there's a lot of hyperbole inside the Scriptures, right? A lot of hyperbole. Jesus uses a lot of hyperbole. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better to go into, right? Better to go into heaven with marred without one eye than it is to go to hell with both eyes, right? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I mean, Jesus isn't saying, literally, that if you're having a problem with lust, gouge your eyeballs out. He's overstating. It's hyperbole. So we know that hyperbole inside of the Scriptures is a possibility. So I'm reading that. I'm like, whoo, good. Maybe this, is, maybe this is hyperbole. Maybe this is rhetorical exaggeration. Maybe it's overstating it. You know, perhaps impossible is an overstatement in order to catch our intention, so, or our attention. So let's investigate. You know, I'm like, okay, let's investigate. Let's see if it's an overstatement to catch our attention. 
Now, verse 9 could possibly indicate that it is. And this is why I had to put verse 9 in. What does verse 9 say? Verse 9 says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So I'm like, all right, so he's speaking in this way, but you know, he's, he's sure in their case that he, the, the, of better things, things that belong to salvation. Okay, he's overstating it, except for the fact that when I read that, he's very specifically talking about in the case of the original audience as they read it, here's this harsh warning, we need to be worried about it. However, you're the original audience hearing this, and where you're at right now, I feel like maybe that's not something that is happening to you, but it could happen. Am I making sense? Let me explain it a different way. He's saying that bad drivers get in wrecks. Right? And so we need to make sure as bad drivers that we are better drivers so that we don't get in wrecks because when they get in wrecks, they die. But in your case, I'm, I'm sure of better things because you know, I feel like there's better things because you're not bad drivers. And that's basically what he's saying. He's not saying that it's not true that bad drivers don't get in wrecks and don't end up killing themselves. He's saying, in your particular instance, I'm warning you about this, but I don't think it's gone that far yet. So while I'm like, in one sense, I'm like, shoo, it's overstated. In the other sense, I'm like, well, is it really? Because why would he say, I'm not sure, why would he even warn about it if it's not possible? Like, why is it even there if it's not possible? Right? Like, people who struggle with the doctrine of hell being real. Like, why would Jesus even talk about a real, literal hell if there really isn't one? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, the only thing that I could think of, like, with Jesus doing that is He's trying to manipulate me. Then if He's trying to manipulate me, well, well, that's deceit. That means he's a liar and he can't be trusted in anything, so there must be a real hell. The same thing with the author of Hebrews. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's warning about something. And so I've got to give it some credence and I've got to wrestle through it and go, okay, why is this here? Right? And so that's what we're doing is wrestling through it. Why is this here? Now, Lang, Schaff, Mole, and Kendrick, who wrote a commentary on the book of Hebrews, they make this argument, like on the other side. They say to weaken down a dunaton under the plea of rhetorical exaggeration is purely arbitrary. The object of the, the, of the author is precisely this. To set before the eyes the re, excuse me, to set before the eyes of the readers the whole magnitude of the danger and the fearful import and gravity of the crisis to which they have come. They're saying, just like Jesus looked at his disciples, the twelve, and tells them, don't fear anyone except for the one who has the power to send you to hell. He's warning. And they argue on this side. And so, I'm like, maybe it's overstatement. And as I read it, I'm thinking maybe it's not. And then these guys are like, well, this doesn't really line up. But I, but I start reading what they're saying. And I'm like, let's wrestle with this. Like, why are they coming up? with this and so one of the things that i do is i see maybe something inside of scripture and something you should do is back up and i read it in context so i read lots of scripture not two or three verses lots of scripture on this side and lots of scripture on this side 
Lots of scripture on this side, lots of scripture on this side. Right? Let me give you an example of why. Jeremiah 29, 11. Very famous verse. You see it on people's shirts all the time. You see it on churches. We're going to do our mission trip or we're going to, this is how our church is going to be. And we tote Jeremiah 29, 11 as a promise from God. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not evil to give you a future and a hope. We're claiming that promise over our church. That's theologically incorrect. You cannot claim Jeremiah 29, 11 as a blanket promise for prosperity to whatever we put our hand to. Because the original context of Jeremiah 29, 11 is the book of Jeremiah. And what is going on in chapter 29 and chapter 28, God is talking to the prophet Jeremiah saying, look, your people are carried into Babylonian captivity for the fact that they rebelled against me. They are in grievous sin, so much so that I have taken away all of the covenantal blessings. And when they repent of their wickedness, I will bless them because I want blessing in their life, not evil. But that promise is contingent upon repentance from our wickedness. That is not how we use that verse. We say, oh, I came up with an idea and God's plan is to bless me. You can use that verse if you say, God has convicted me of this sin and I'm going to repent of it. And when I repent of it, he's going to bless me. That would be properly using that scripture. Does it make sense about how, we, how it changes everything when we read stuff in context? Amen? It's just like this one, and I'm going to be my last one for now. Romans 6.23. Everybody uses Romans 6.23 to... Not everybody, but people who use the Roman roads, and I'm not anti that, use Romans 6.23 to use it as a salvation verse to witness to people. It is not about salvation at all. Not even a little bit. It is in the section of the book that is about personal holiness. And he's talking about living a holy life that is pleasing to God in our relationship, growing with God, to born again people, growing in relationship with God. And he says, but if you start sinning and bring sin into the equation and start living any way you want to, the wages of that sin is death to this relationship with God. But I'll be with you. And if you repent, I'll bring life back into it. That verse is about sanctification. It's about personal holiness. It's about growing in relationship with the Lord. Salvation is dealt with in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. We take a lot of stuff out of context. Now, is it true that the wages of sin is death in the life of an unbeliever? Absolutely. Is the gift of God eternal life in Christ Jesus? Absolutely. I'm not saying that that's wrong. But I'm just saying it's the wrong verse to use. Because what we're doing is teaching people to take stuff out of context. I don't know, that's a challenge. And I know that I stand against, at that point, a lot of preachers who've taught people to do that. But I'm just saying, read in context. So I'm reading in context. All of that to say I'm reading in context. And as I read, I get down to Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18. And it uses the exact same word in the Greek. When it says that it's impossible for God to lie. It says that it is a dunaton for God to lie. 
So within just a few verses, he's overstating it here, but he's not here. I don't know. Now, I'm not saying you can't use it to exaggerate at some point, that the author can't use it to exaggerate, but I'm thinking the author of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Spirit is playing a dicey game if within just a few sentences he uses the word to mean one thing and then uses it to mean another thing. Because if he's exaggerating here, well, maybe he's exaggerating here, maybe God can lie. Maybe he just means it's really hard for God to lie. I don't think so. I look at this harsh warning and I'm like, okay, as I'm reading this, that it's a dunaton to restore somebody that's fallen away. And then I looked at it's a dunaton for God to lie right there in the same passage of Scripture, the same word. I'm like, man, I think, I think maybe impossible means impossible. I'm afraid that impossible clearly means impossible no matter how much I wish that it did not. Maybe impossible means exactly that, impossible, no matter how much I wish that it didn't mean impossible. I want to soften the blow. I want to say it's not impossible. I want to do all of these things because I'm not comfortable with the fact that it's impossible. But maybe it means exactly what the author of Hebrews knew that it meant when he wrote it down under the inspiration of the Spirit. Maybe I don't have permission to redefine these words, to be comfortable with it. We talked about this last week when we talked about dwelling on baby doctrines and and the weirdness that comes out of dwelling on baby doctrines and the fact that Rob Bell, who was was leading a church, one of the fastest growing churches in our country, thousands of people going to church there, and he comes out, and he's always believed this, he didn't change. I've seen it for years with him that he didn't believe that hell was a real literal place that was eternal. And he finally comes out and directly says it. He gets pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed enough. And he says, yes, hell will be emptied eventually. Post-mortem evangelism, evangelism after you die, Jesus is going to continue to woo you into the kingdom. And he is going to win you out into the kingdom of God. That's what he said. Why? Because he can't stomach hell. I'm struggling stomaching the word impossible. But I need to avoid the error that Rob made. And, and, I, and listen to me. God loves Rob Bell. I'm not trying to be a Rob Bell basher. I'm wrong about stuff sometimes. But this is one that we can't be wrong about. Right? And I pray to God Rob is in heaven with us. Okay? So don't, don't, I'm not trying to beat the guy down and just say he's a bum. But hear me, just because I can't stomach the possibility doesn't mean it's not possible. God says it's not possible. So what does this do to, can I lose my salvation? Or am I eternally secure? How do I, how do I see this paradox work out? I see this crazy, harsh warning. How does this paradox work out? Here's how it works out for me. Trust with all your heart that God can keep you from falling away from the faith, but live every day as though He can't. 
That's way too Calvinistic for the Arminians. And that's way too Arminian for the Calvinists. But that stance, I think, and I could be wrong, I might change, I might tweak this a little bit as I grow in the Lord, as I learn more about Him. That stance, I've come to that conclusion by looking at both sides. By looking at the passages where Jesus says that no one can snatch you out of my hand. But then looking at the passages that warn that we can lose it. By looking at James where it says, you tell me you have faith and I will show you my faith by what I do. It's not faith plus works that gets us into heaven. It's not faith without works. It's a faith that works. This stance to me means the kingdom has come but not yet fully come. I'm preaching on this passage of Scripture again next week. We're going to talk about this tasting the heavenly gift and and the powers of the age to come. That's the next part that we're going to talk about next week. What was he talking about there? Okay, The kingdom of God has come but not yet fully come. And if I want to experience God's blessing in my life, if I want to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit in my life, if I want to experience all of these things, I live in trusting in that I'm secure in His hand, but I live also knowing that how I live matters to God. The funny thing is, is that if we fall into the once saved, always saved camp, we don't really believe that how we live doesn't matter to God. Because, well, I can, I'm, I'm born again and I can do and God's going to let me in. But Steve's born again and when he does me dirty, well, God's going to get him for that. We believe it for me, but not for Steve. I believe it for me, but not for Rob. Right? We believe people's actions matter, don't we? Come on. Come on, church. Do we believe people's actions matter? Amen? I mean, there was a, there was a pastor of a mega church who just stepped down because he was having an extramarital affair. And he admitted it. We believe his actions matter. Amen? Because they do matter. So we trust with all our heart that God can keep us. But we live as though we can lose it. That should not say as thought we, he can't. That should say as though he can't. I hate it when you misspell words and it's a real word. Then spell check doesn't catch it. Oh, well. I, I just want to expect just a little bit and then I'm going to shush. How we live our life matters to God. You ask me, why do I hold to certain standards? Why do I teach certain things? Because how we live matters to God. This, yes, grace is there, but not as an excuse to continue to sin. Grace is there, but not as an excuse to rebel against God. I mean, Paul says that in Romans chapter 8. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. Friends, 
as much as New Testament Christians like to say that we're not under the law anymore, they don't really believe that and it's not really true. Jesus, we're not under the law as a means to get to God. But the law still applies in the exact same way as it did in the Old Testament. And it is wrong to murder. If you don't think it's wrong to murder, please raise your hand. That is a law of God's Word. If it is wrong, or if you don't think it's wrong to lie, raise your hand. I don't see any hands. This is God's law. If you don't think it's wrong for your spouse to have an affair on you, raise your hand. I don't see any hands. It's one of God's laws. Those laws weren't meant to make us righteous because we've all broken those laws. Those laws are to show us the difference between right and wrong. The New Testament tells us they're to serve as a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. Jesus Christ said these words, Do not think I have come to abolish the law. No, I came to fulfill it, but not one jot or tittle will pass away till the end comes. Has the end come yet, friends? Like, this side's convinced. Has the end come? When does the end come? When Jesus comes back and makes heaven and earth one. When Jesus returns, that's when the end has come. The end did not come when Jesus was crucified. That was intermission, baby. Now we're in the final act. Can I get a witness? Okay, now we're in the final act. The end has not come. And the reality is, we believe this in the core of our being. That's why we won't let people go out there and indiscriminately indiscriminately kill other people without putting them in prison. That's why we won't let people go steal stuff. Because we know it's wrong. And if it was wrong under the law, it's wrong under grace. And grace actually is harsher, in my opinion, than the law. Because Jesus said, you've heard it was written in days of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, this is Jesus saying, but I tell you, not Jerry saying, but I tell you. But I tell you, if you look with lust, you're guilty of adultery already in your heart. Jesus said, you've heard it was written in days of old, you shall not murder. But I tell you, if you're angry without cause... You're guilty of murder already. If you say, Raka, that's like, moron, or you fool, you're liable to the judgment. Grace doesn't require less, friends. It requires more. Grace says, I saved you in my grace. I love you. I came down. I redeemed you. I gave it all for you. Now you give it all for me. That's what grace says. I know. It's not, the, it's not the most comfortable message. But as we like to do, or as I like to do, I don't want you to believe me. Because you know what? I can make a mistake. So I want you to read the scriptures and see what the scriptures say. Monday, homework. And if you don't know what homework is, every week I give out passages of Scripture that have us to wrestle with these things that I'm talking about to see if God's Word bears this out because I'm a preacher 
And I believe preachers can be wrong sometimes. And so God's Word, though, is never wrong. So Monday, Romans 11, 17-24. This passage of Scripture specifically shows that we were grafted in and we can be taken back out. Tuesday, 1 Corinthians 9, 19-27. This passage of Scripture is even crazier. Paul suggests that he himself, Paul, the super apostle, could actually be cut off from God. Wednesday, 1 Corinthians 10, 6-13. We're warned about our manner of life coming between us and Jesus, effectively cutting us off from Him. However, we're also told, like verse 9, that there's grace to overcome. That, that one ends with the, but when tempted, He won't let you be tempted beyond that which you can stand, but when tempted, He'll provide the way of escape. God's like, hey, this can cut you off, but I'm there with you, kid. I'll help you through it if you just trust me. Thursday, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. The church at Galatia is being rebuked for falling away from God and following a false gospel. The New Testament church at Galatia is being rebuked for falling away from God and following a false gospel. I think actually in one of the translations, Paul actually says, Who has bewitched you? Oh, wicked Galatians. That's kind of crazy. Friday, Galatians 5, 1 through 10. Talks about them falling away from Christ into legalism and coming out from underneath the grace. But then it turns around and says there's grace in all of this still. And Saturday, Galatians chapter 5, 16 through 26. They're warned not to fall into the pit of liberalism. And Paul shows them that ignoring holiness could well put them in danger of hell. They're warned one, in one, one section of chapter 5 to not fall into legalism and in the other section of chapter 5 to not fall into the pit of liberalism. Don't try to earn it, but it matters. This is a biblical paradox. Holiness matters. Where we are with God matters. But like I said, don't take my word for it. Read the homework. Let's pray. Father, oh, thank you that you don't think the way we think. Thank you that you don't live the way we live. Thank you that you're not afraid to say things. And thank you for encouraging us to go through a book one verse at a time so that we have to deal with the crazy stuff like this and wrestle with it. Lord, I believe wholeheartedly that you can keep me, that I was saved by your grace and I'm kept by your grace. But Lord, I also believe wholeheartedly that your scriptures warn about falling away and that warning isn't for vain. It isn't in vain. So Lord, while it's the power of your grace in my life that keeps me, Lord, you tell me I have to respond to that. That I have to continue growing. And I know that the point of this message makes our faith a whole lot more messy. 
And we'd like it to be a whole lot simpler. But you never told us that it wasn't going to be messy. As a matter of fact, I think you warned us several times in the scriptures that it was going to be messy. So we just ask that you would continue to increase in us. Lord, to offer grace and forgiveness, but to also know that what we do with that grace and forgiveness matters to you. Let us esteem the sacrifice that Christ made. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said it.